Hello, hello, there we go. Uh, today's message that uh, John will be getting, giving is out of 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. I will be reading out of the English Standard Version. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. I know the uh, the stream would have started, so our folks that are home and, and sick, not doing well, are now now hearing us. So uh, just remember that you're in our prayers, um, and, and especially uh, you know for the COVID folks, keep those folks in your prayers that they're feeling better soon. And um, specifically, uh, Jim is out this morning. Um, he's in uh, sackcloth and ashy, so keep him in your uh, keep him in your prayers. If you if you know, you know. Um, so we are in the book of First John, um, second second chapter, verses seven through eleven. Um, important to remember that we are in a book that's being written to and is is addressing believers. So the things that we're hearing are um, instructions for people who are in the faith, who are found in Christ. Um, and John is really uh, focused in on love in this section, and we'll see that. Um, in fact, we'll see that not having a particular love for the brethren is counter to both Christ's life and his command. Um, so as we see Jesus interacting with people who are in him effectively, we see a particular care, um, not to the exclusion of people in the world who aren't in him, but just that there is a particular care, a particular fellowship, a particular interaction uh, with people who are aligned to God and Christ. So the message that John delivers to his readers that we um, are reading this morning is, is a hard message. Um, it's, it's tough enough that he spends the first couple of verses, seven and eight, kind of qualifying the message that he's going to land on. Um, and he sets up an understanding of a connection between Jesus' commands and darkness and light. He's giving us this fuller picture so that when we get to verse 11, we can really more appreciate what's being said. He gives a negative side of the conclusion. He gives a positive side of the conclusion. And then he lands in verse 11 again with another negative example. It's, sometimes it's helpful to understand things both in the negative and in the positive. Um, you get a, a fuller perspective. Or maybe you're someone who just thinks on the negative side. Maybe you're someone who thinks on the, on the positive side. Um, not everybody thinks about the positive side. To some people, everything is just negative and, and gloomy and works-based and terrible. Um, but some people are positive. And so John gives both sides of that coin. Um, and at the end, what we get is a more complete understanding of Jesus as the light 
and the implications then of walking in the light or not in the light is given. Um, and each of those, each of the implications um, gives us a revelation that John describes. Um, actions are interesting because our actions can be, you know, I can have an action that's like pulling a lever, right? Very transactional. I pull a lever and something happens, right? So if I have a lever in front of me and I grab it and I pull it, and it's just attached to a pole that loops around and has a boot, and it just hits me in the face. And someone tells me, hey, when you pull that lever, you're going to get hit in the face with a boot. I can understand that. That's, that's directly related to the action that I take. Um, some actions can just can have consequences. Maybe there's not an immediate result that's directly connected to pulling that lever, but if you talk to me and you say, John, um, I noticed when you were in the store that you stole something, right? You, you saw some... Uh, a pack of big league chew, and I saw you put it in your pocket and walk out. Um, there's, there's some repercussions to that if you get caught stealing things. And one day if I get caught stealing big league chew from the corner market, then I'll have to talk with police and there'll be some consequence. So that's a consequence of my action. There's also revelation that can come through our actions. And that's where we get, we inspect our actions, we inspect our fruit, and Scripture talks about that a lot. Um, John, when he's out in the woods in his camel hair, eating honey and yelling at people, right, says, you brood of vipers, bear fruits worthy of repentance. He wanted them to look at their lifestyle, right? I think people get John wrong. He wasn't just yelling at people and being obtuse, and he wasn't just, like, insane. He was trying to get people to think about their actions, and so inspecting our actions can give us insight into what's actually happening in us. Right? Last week we, we said, you know, if, if you tell me that you follow after Dave Ramsey and you do nothing that looks like following after Dave Ramsey, you go nuts on credit, you buy yourself toys all over the place, you get deeper and deeper and deeper into debt, your actions would reveal that maybe you're not all that deeply impressed or convinced that Dave Ramsey's ways are true. You might be interested in them, but you're not deeply convinced because you live nothing like it. And that's what John is doing for his believers. He wants them to be able to look at their actions and get some revelation into what's going on in their hearts. He's not asking them to change their actions, right? This is not tapping a button like a dolphin to get a, to get a piece of tuna, right? This is all about understanding what's going on inside yourself, inspecting your fruits. And it's a very biblical concept to do so. So with that said, we'll get to... Um, verses 7 through 11. We'll look at seven, verse 7 by itself first. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. So just starting with this, John has already addressed the readers of his book as, as little children, right? That's kind of demonstrative of his pastoral care over them. Generally, we're pretty easy with little children. We tap them in the head. You know, you don't, you don't slam a little kid in the back. Say, hey, buddy, how's it going? And they're face first on the ground. You'd immediately feel bad, right? We have a chubby little one who runs around in here, and he slides across the floor, and you can hear his skin go across the floor, and he gets up, and everybody's like, the airs suck out. And then He's cool. He's off again, you know, he's thinking about dinosaurs and having a good time. That's, that's the thing about little children. We care about them. If I watched on, I was on Twitter the other day, and some poor, poor young woman, you can't do anything wrong with the internet, right? Um, I was watching, there was a scene from a wrestling match, 
and she was like the trainer and somebody had been injured or had blood or something like that. And, and for whatever reason, they tape wrestling mats to the floor, which is like a massive trip hazard. So she comes screaming in like grease lightning to take care of this injured person, trips on the tape and slides into the mat right up next to the kid that was hurt. And so they put that on the internet and everybody laughs. That's the difference between little kids and, and adults. There's a different kind of a care. And so John is kind of demonstrating his pastoral care for the people that he writes to. But here in verse 7, when he kind of pivots, he's still following the same message, but now he's really pivoting. He's really looking at this group of people and he's addressing them and he's reminding them who they are. He says, beloved. This word used 61 times across the New Testament is dear or beloved, one who is loved. Um, it's actually the used a lot in these epistles. This is the first usage of this word in, in 1 John. Similar word is used Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17. We see, behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved, same word, son, with whom I am well pleased. Luke chapter 20 and verse 13. Jesus is speaking. He's actually giving some teaching that's a, a bit foreshadowing of his own, the, his own story of his own life and God's sending of him. Verse 13, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? Will I send my beloved son? Perhaps they will respect him. And ultimately we know how that kind of worked out, in Jesus, both in Jesus' story and then carrying forward in his own life. The crowd demonstrating themselves to be just like us, sought after Barabbas over Jesus. So that's great. Those are both instances that talk about the special particular love of God for Christ. We anticipate that. So Romans chapter 1 and verse 7, we read, To all those in Rome who are loved, same word, by God, and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Very frequently, this love is used to carry just the mighty weight of God to the elect. Several words for love to draw on. Generally speaking, this particular one is connected to God, some particular love. The only instance that I'm aware of where it is is in John 3, 16 through 19. It says that we love the darkness rather than the light. So in describing how much, how bent towards darkness we are, uses this particular form of love. In writing to the church in Romans 1-7, we see that those who are loved by God are also called to be saints. Um, so if we are found in Christ, if we're believers, Scripture knows us as saints. It's not that Doug lived a particularly good life and made lots of sandwiches for people who had made life decisions to live without a refrigerator. And so we vote and we recognize him as Saint Doug and we make weird necklaces with his inscriptions on it. It's that in Christ... God's particular love for us sees us as saints, members of his, of his kingdom, as people of the body of Jesus' church. 
We forget sometimes that the church is not ours. This is not ours to edit. This is not ours to do with what we want. This is not ours to impress upon uh, with our own motives and desires. This is Jesus' bride. Um, so we should treat the church as though the particular love and care that the Son of God has for it. We should treasure it. We should protect it. We should desire that it be worthy of the calling. Um, we should desire as members of the church that we're living up to its charter, that we're doing with it what Christ's purpose was for it. So that's who this book is to, the beloved. Those people called as saints, the elect, believers. We read that Philemon was that in verse 16. We see that he was no longer a bondservant, but more than a bondservant. As a beloved brother, same word. Philemon was deeply treasured, was found in Christ. And so then this weighty message that verse 11 will land on is written to the elect believers. This is John's focus. It's important to say that because we shouldn't read into the scriptures things that are written for believers if we well know we aren't believers or communicate to people who are not believers these truths that are to believers. That, that those truths that are to believers, those promises for the believers are those that are found in Christ. Those who see their sin before a holy and righteous God repent and turn from those sins, turn to Christ. It's so important that that's what repentance is, right? If, if, if before I was repentant, before I was found in Christ, I trusted myself to make all decisions. There was no delineation between holy and unholy. There was no delineation between sin and not sin. In fact, there was just full throttle forward. It didn't matter. There was no sin. The concept of God was a mockery. If I hit my thumb with a hammer, I didn't yell out Mahatma Gandhi. I would take Christ's name in vain. And so then being repentant is turning from all of that, is now trusting Christ and not yourself. So Jesus becomes your Savior, certainly, but he becomes your Lord. And so when the Lord says to do something, we do it, right? It's not as though I have a Lord and that Lord says, go do this thing. And I say, well, I don't know. No, we listen to our Lord. And that's what Jesus becomes. Paul referred to himself as a as an under rower, you know, an, an under rower. You've probably seen this depicted in movies, right? You see the boat and then there's the undercarriage of the boat. And down there is a bunch of gritty dudes. Maybe there's somebody in front that's banging, banging a drum so that everybody rows in unison. And this is how the ship moves through the water is by all the under rowers who literally hold oars with their arms and, and pull to make the vessel move forward. This is how Paul refers to himself. So what, how do we see ourselves? Right? If that's how Paul sees himself, how do we see ourselves? Maybe we see ourselves higher than we should. And so like Philemon, like the Romans, and in fact, like God's love for Christ, that's how we are found because we're found in Christ, right? Our sins are covered by Jesus. We take on his very righteousness. When God sees us, when we're found in Christ, he sees the righteousness of his son, not our filthy rags, which is amazing because without Christ, the only thing we'd have left to offer is filthy rags. And so these elect believers, 
were living in a church community that John is writing to where some had left because of this concept of Gnosticism, right? This secret knowledge. They had been convinced with their itching ears that there was something else that wasn't found in the scriptures, but that was very important. And perhaps they could live sinlessly if they would go get that secret knowledge, be a part of that club. There were probably pieces of clothing that they had to put on, levels of the star order that they had to get to so that they could get a little more information, right? Maybe they got secret clothes that they could wear under their clothes and they got a little more information. It's not being satisfied with the word of God that sets us up to be in trouble, right? Scripture says that by the insincerity of liars in the, in the last times is how people will be deceived. We're safe from deception when we're found in the scriptures, if somebody comes to me and presents some other truth that's not found in Scripture, I say, I mean, maybe that's interesting, but this is what I live by. This is what was given to me. These, this is the full revelation that God has for us to know him. This, is, this, this book describes itself as the only thing that I need for reproof, for doctrine, for instruction, and for training in righteousness. There's nothing outside of this that I need. No secret knowledge. No message that isn't the gospel is important. In the book of Galatians, we've got the, the, the region of, of Galatia, the Galatian region, maybe Turkey area, where Paul comes through on his first missionary journey. Chapter 1 and verse 8, he says, But if even we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel, contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. That's how, that's the, that's the gravity that the gospel has. The, allowing an impurity into the message of the gospel is to point people away from God, not towards God, not differently towards God. Um, that we know that there is one path to God, that is the man, Christ Jesus. Anything that talks about some other path, some other way, our own personal righteousness, you will fold before a holy God before you stand on your righteousness. Dealing with false apostles, of which there are still many, one of the first things that we did when we moved into this building, before we picked up all the random stuff that was piled around before we dealt with the collapsed ceiling, before we painted the first wall, was removed the photographs of the Hall of Living Apostles that was running up the stairs to the Sloan Room. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 and 3 reads like this, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband using this, this kind of concept of, of wedding language, right? He's, he's talking about the, the, the church of Christ, Jesus' bride, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He's saying that these false apostles would be like the serpent in Genesis 3. I mean, the gravity of that statement is also high. It was the serpent in Genesis 3 that questioned God's word and planted a seed of doubt into Adam and Eve's mind, which brought original sin into the world that is still bearing fruit today. 
And the question is always against God's word. Did God really say? John comes to these beloved with a concern, writing them about no new commandment. I'm not coming to you with something new. I'm not coming to you with a new, neat idea. And this concept of the commandment is not the fullness of the law given at Sinai. It's like 1 John 1.10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Or 1 John 2.6, we studied very recently. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way on which he walked. This is the commandments, is to follow after Christ, right? That, that we should be walking like Jesus walked. Or 1 John 2, 4, which said, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Again, this goes back to that concept that John has been, has been harping on, I guess you could say, about abiding in Christ, following his commandments. It's, it's evidential of your salvation. We shouldn't be sprinting after things that are counter to what Jesus says. We shouldn't be living in patterned ways that are counter to what Jesus said. We're not slaves to those things anymore. And what John is not doing is trying to get us to make a behavioral change. Right? He doesn't say, hey, put a rubber band on your wrist, and um, every time you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, or every time you steal a pack of gum, snap the rubber band on your wrist and change your behavior. Saying, he's, he's, if, you, if you find these patterned things about yourself, look to Christ and be saved. Um, if you know that you're a believer and you find that you're being drawn into these areas, look to Christ and remember who he is. Remember that he makes you more than a conqueror. Remember that you're not a slave to that anymore. You can rely on him. You can be in prayer. You can be abiding more. I'm, I'm no medium or soothsayer, but I would caution a guess that if you are starting to find yourself in old ways of sin, I bet you are also starting to find yourselves outside of devotion and abiding in Christ. Now, those things are chained together. Now, what I'm not saying is if you're in devotion and abiding in Christ, you're going to live a sinless life. In fact, John dealt with that earlier. He said, when, when you sin, Christ is there as your, as your Savior. Verse 8 Remember, these, these, these first two verses are like a preamble. He's setting up an understanding so that we can really land solidly on verse 11. And so he'd give us one perspective and then give us another perspective so that when we step away, we have a fuller picture of the truth. So in verse 7, he just said, I'm writing you no new commandment. Now, verse 8 should jump off of the page then because he says, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Um, now, John is not creative here. If you, if you look at John's gospel, chapter 13 and verse 34, you'll see Jesus speaking on this. John is so frequently drawing on something that Jesus has said. Smart guy. Chapter 13 and verse 34 a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to live, love one another. That's why it's new. 
Love was always there. The commandment to love was always there. This is always a reflection of God's own character, which is love. The newness is to do it patterned as Jesus had loved them. So we're to follow after our Lord and Savior. We're to love one another the way that Jesus loved his own disciples, apostles, followers, his own family. We model after that. That's the newness. The light now has come into the world. The darkness is fading. The darkness is in the background. It's in the rearview mirror. It's, 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 it's constricting. The darkness is going away. The light will take over and live eternally forever. Jesus is pushing us over towards the light, saying, reflect the love that I've demonstrated as I lived in this world. John 15, 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now know that he's talking to believers. It's important to know who the message is to. What is true and perfect in Christ is in us. And so we should desire to practice and walk out the newness of the Christian life. The commandments that our Lord Jesus gave to us. Colossians 2.6 says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus as the Lord, so walk in Him. That should be our desire, to walk in Him. Galatians 5.25. Don't sprain your fingers. It'll come up. You can write it down. It's in the bulletin. Galatians 5.25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. All of, these, all of these encouragements to follow after. And remember, it's not follow after like change your behavior. It's, it's a desire to follow after. It's, it's not a, hey, do this and be perfect at it. Right? If you say that there's no sin in you, you lie. You're a liar. The truth of God is not in you. But, but there should be a desire to, in us to follow after Christ. We receive the message that we have sinned, the reality that we have sinned. We receive differently as believers. And I would, I would tell you, it shouldn't be crushing. It should be encouragement to give that over to God, to be in prayer around that. Um, scripture uh, describes us as being pressed on all sides, but not crushed. Now, I think that's encouraging because I think sometimes the message that we give doesn't make it seem that we as Christians are pressed on all sides. But I think the, the message that maybe we believe or sometimes we project to the world around us or to newer believers, believers around us or maybe us as a, as a believer who's been walking with Christ for a while really believe that life should be great. Um, like, like my pastor in New Mexico used to say that you stand under the spout where the glory comes out and God just rains goodness on you constantly. That's not this life. You know, that's the next life where we're like we read in, in the book of Revelation, the creatures that are even near to God, even though they're still all at a distance. They just repeat night and day with no stopping. Holy, holy, holy. He is so different. He can just be described as different. His goodness is so incredible. And so when we live in a broken and fractured world where Satan goes to and fro on it, and desires to tempt us, desires to lie, and has been practicing it for hundreds of hundreds and a few thousand years. 
If we start relying on ourselves to do it perfectly against someone who's the deceiver and the liar that's practiced in stumbling people, then we put ourselves in trouble. You know, I hear some people are sometimes like, I want to storm. They always say it with an accent, by the way. I'm going to storm the gate to hell. See ya. Like, I don't want any part in that, man. I'm just going to hide back here behind Jesus. Right? Like, like if the deceiver is at the front door and Jesus is in the room, like, I'm kind of like, you know, hand on his back, like, sneaking up, kind of look like I do with Big Mama. When there's something scary in the house, I send her downstairs and I just kind of, I'm behind her. What's up, Mama? At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in Him. Right? It's true in Christ that we can now reflect the kind of love that Jesus had, which he commanded us to reflect the kind of love that Jesus had for the world around us. And so that's why Jesus is such an interesting study. You see the fullness of God in and interacting with a broken world. I mean, do you want to see how holiness would react with the world around you? Look at Jesus. And Jesus then said, now, love the, the brethren around you the same way you've seen me love you all. Paul would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus' whole end game is different. Jesus isn't here to be a wet blanket and end the party. The party leads to death. It's you know this this new construct that increasingly I see as post post Christianity, and I, I stole that from someone. I just don't know who it was, so all credit due to whoever said that. Post post Christianity has no real vision for the future. It just battles against truth, against true truth. It tries to come up with new truth. It tries to push against things that were previously understood. Um, it probably won't be long before we stop believing that gravity is real. And guess what? The, when we were working on the roof up here one year, I had a, a piece of like, I don't know, it was underlayment or something like that. And, and above you, though the interior roof ceiling goes like this, the roof is actually at a, at a peak above you. And I was running with a, a board one time. And I ran right up to the peak and a gust of wind came. And it literally left me like, like, a, like a, you know, a cartoon character with my feet in the air for a moment. I thought, holy stink, because that's how I, I speak. That's how Christians talk, right? Holy stink, like I'm going to fly off of this roof. And so I had all kinds of decisions to make, right? I let this board go and it goes and it, it, it definitely kills someone, right? Because that's what would happen. I hold on to this board. I float off the roof and it definitely kills me, like, you know, I'm dead. Or, you know, I let it go with one hand and very athletically coast to the ground, which I don't even know which, which of those options came true. You know, you, you handle those things in the moment. But whether I believed in gravity in those moments or not had no bearing on the outcome if I just said, holy sin, and flew off the roof. I was going to hit the ground, right? And, and that's the problem with battling against truth. Is truth is true whether you believe it or not. You walk off the side of that roof, you're going to hit the ground and you're either going to die or wish you were dead. And so that's what John is pushing against. 
is making sure that people aren't redefining true. Because when you redefine true about God, the future, and eternity, we don't even appreciate the significance of that. That's why Paul said he was so hotly jealous for these people. Right in the, in the book of Romans, when he was, he was talking about these, these false apostles, it was so important to him that the purity of the gospel message be protected because of the outcomes, right? We're so distracted by this life, right? We know who's going to get a rose and who's going to get married on that goofball TV where like you, you, you get married like it's some kind of an experiment, right? Who came up with this? How does this exist? Or, you know, we know how the relationship is going with Cody and his nine wives, we're so distracted by so much trash that's going on, whether or not whether or not McDonald's has a McRib sandwich right now. Our heads are full of so much garbage that we become distracted by the, the significance of what this book talks about. It's true and it's real. It's this in this life that's distracting. This life begs you to be constantly distracted by anything. A ringing phone, if you don't know how to mute those every Sunday getting alerts about the Steelers losing another game because they're awful and terrible. This life is constantly distracting us. And I'm telling you, it leaves us numb to the things that are actually incredibly important. Um, in fact, the scriptures say that in the, in the end times, is it Thessalonians? I'm getting, I'm getting ahead of my skis here, but... Um, talks about our consciences being seared by the insincerity of liars. So what that means is, as we tune in to those people who are being liars and who are insincere, and we continually hear untrue things, unchecked, unchallenged, and we just live with that, our conscience, the way the Holy Spirit speaks to us and convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, becomes seared. You know, And you know, the, 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 this problem with searing... If you've ever accidentally seared your skin, which, which I did with a boiling uh, bowl of ramen noodle, and I, I got a big, huge, I mean, comically large blister on my finger. When the searing is done, it hurts really bad, but then you can't feel anymore. And so spending your time around these insincere liars who are giving you other gospels who should be like anathema to you, who you should never, who you should put off and you should do absolutely no fellowship with, you listen to because maybe they're neat or maybe they tell you interesting things or maybe they tell you how to make every single day be just like Friday. But it sears your conscience to the truth and it makes you further from God. A seared conscience is not a good thing. We want to have short accounts with sin. We want to be abiding often in Christ. We want to be surrounded by truth. We don't want to be um, lulled by untruths, continually believe them and have our conscience seared. That's a bad place for us to be. And so for the role of the church, one of the roles of the church, one of the roles of the leadership of the church is to push those people off and not allow that to be because it is unhealthy and ungood, not good for us as a group. Therefore, as you receive Christ, also walk in him. It's an encouragement. It's an opportunity. It's a reminder that if we believe this message is true, then our conviction should look like it. We should desire to be like Christ. Are we Christ? No. 
Do we do this perfectly? No, but that should be our desire. There should at least be some evidence in our life that we care about Jesus. And if there's not, perhaps that's an opportunity to repent, turn from trusting ourselves and turn towards trusting God. Living in Christ's commands results in brotherly love and fellowship. Jesus told us directly to do that, right? So this action is like one of those actions, not like a lever attached to a boot that pounds me in the face every time I pull it, not like a consequence, but an opportunity for me to inspect, oh, well, what does it seem like I'm deeply convicted in? Right? What does it, maybe, maybe, maybe psychology would describe it as your subconscious, right? The locus of self. The Bible talks about it as our heart, where we're most deeply convicted. What is the truth of where we're most deeply convicted? Our actions oftentimes will help us get insight into that more than maybe just thinking about it. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. There's a test. <laughs> Do you hate members of the brethren? Do you hate people that you should be fellowshipping with? Do you hate people that Jesus loves? That's problematic. That's a, not an evidence of fruit in your life. It's an opportunity for repentance. It's an opportunity to model after Christ is what it is. So then as we have opportunity, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10 says, not so subtly. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And this part is so often missed or not understood. Let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So generally, we're doing good to four people, right? No, I'm sorry, let me, let me say that differently because that could be very confusing. We're doing good towards people. We're doing good things for people as we have opportunity or occasion. But in the body, we're particularly loving towards one another. We have a particular care and desire for, the, for goodness in people's lives. And so we particularly want to fellowship together. Right? We want to be around one another. It's important for us. So how do I know who's a member of the household of the faith? It's a good question. Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers were outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, right? So somebody came up and probably tapped Jesus on the side and said, hey, man, come on. And your, your brothers, they're outside. You probably should go talk to them. Jesus says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching his hand out towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. And then I think he went outside and talked to his mom. He took the opportunity to say, those who I'm in fellowship with, those who believe like me, those who want to be studying in the word, they want to know my father, God, that's, that's my family. That's, the, that's my nuclear family. These are the people that I care about. Jesus did not come to bring peace, but a sword. His message is divisive sometimes. 
It's offensive. The message of the cross is offensive because the message of the cross is very black and white. It doesn't have gradients to it, right? It says you're in Christ and therefore connected to God or you're not and not. That's it. It's very, very binary. It is one or zero. Again, in Romans chapter 13 and verse 8. Owe nothing, oh, excuse me, sorry. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. I don't, I don't think we take that as seriously as we ought to. Fulfilling the law by loving one another. We're even encouraged to outdo one another in showing honor among the brethren. Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. Verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. That's one of these examples from the positive that's working its way towards verse 11, which brings some, you know, maybe some bad news. Right, so here's the good news side of the coin. If you love your brother, if you abide in the light, then there's no cause for stumbling. That idea of cause for stumbling there is like the trigger for a snare or a trap. But I get it. You shop at Giant and you don't know what a snare is. It's actually pretty terrible from a guy who hunts. These are these, This is an awful way of hunting, but some people are totally into it. So you imagine like a, a loose loop of thing, the rope or wire, and maybe you place that somewhere where an animal would be drawn towards, right? Like a little hole under, the, under a fence line, and maybe a fox is going to book it through there, right? And so then the other end of the snare is probably anchored into the ground or tied off to that fence. And so they try to run through it. And what happens? It loops around their neck. And then what happens? They fight against it. They pull and they pull and they pull. And I know what you're thinking because you shop at Giant. And that's why you're going to be wrong. You're thinking they pull and then they kill themselves. No, no, no. They're just stuck there waiting for you to come check your traps and shoot them. And so that's how Scripture says you're not that when you're in the light. That's the positive side. Right? When you're in the light, you don't, you don't trigger that trap. You don't fall into that snare. You could see it. It's right there. M- most of us have fallen into some kind of a trap, if you will, in the dark, right? And, and my favorite example of this is the stairs. If you've ever destroyed your spine by stovepiping yourself in the dark, you know exactly what I mean because your whole body is oriented to take that next step down. Everything is in lockstep. Your back Every vertebrae, your hips, your knee, your leg, and your ankle are in perfect alignment. And you are sending the gravity of your body down for one more seven and a half inch step. But it's not there. What's there? Solid ground. And what happens? An explosive shock wave of bone-destroying energy shoots up through your whole body. This is what trying to operate in the dark is like. You can't see. Like you really need to be able to see to function well. 
And for people who can't see that, that function in the world, they, they get that feedback somehow, right? There's, a, there's a, a thing that they can move around and they can feel the bumps in the sidewalk and things are modified around. Praise God for that, right? Things are modified so people can still function, right? Like maybe you've been downtown and you've pushed a walk button and there's various chirps and beeps or maybe it goes walk, 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 right? That's so that people don't walk into traffic, right? Those bumps that are there on that, that, the, 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 the curb thing are there so that somebody goes, oh, about to walk into the street. That's important information. And so scripture describes us as either in the light because we're walking in Christ and we can accurately see the world around us because Jesus is the light. And this is what John wants us to see or being in the darkness. And when we're in the darkness, we're in trouble because in the darkness, there is no feedback mechanism. There's no bump that tells you you're walking off a curb and straight into a traffic. Right? There's no sidewalk that goes, walk, walk. It's just silence. There's nothing. And as Pastor John and I have both said, it's like this building. Every switch in this building is located as far as possible from a door. And so when you're here at night, and this place is blanketed with anti-light, right? it's so dark in here. You, you, you turn the lights off, and you know, we would be mocking you because we would see the fear on your face, right? Everybody's scared of the dark. I know you're not, but we'll put you in here and we'll video you. It'll be funny. You try to walk across that room. I, I can't tell you the number of times I've gone like head over heels over like a chair, right? Because I'm just walking and I, I like to walk just with confidence when it's dark, just like I'll show you. And, and, and you go flipping over a chair because you can't see. This is how we're described as either being in the light or not. And so John, fighting against this Gnosticism, this secret knowledge, has a theme of brotherly love that can only happen in the truth of following after Christ. There's no other place to find that truth. And so the love of the brethren, the continual fellowship, the continual devotion to teaching the word, the continually battling against untruth about the gospel is evidence of walking in the light. The scripture says that the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So the darkness is the way that we walked before we were in Christ. No regard for sin, no regard for God. We're going after our own way. That's the darkness. That's the John 3, 19. Where you, you loved the darkness rather than the light. It's not that you looked at the light and you looked at the darkness and you had some like evaluation where you did a pro-con list. It's that you saw the light and you went, ugh. You made fun of it, right? You mocked it. Billy Graham was funny. Pastors and preachers, they're, they're stodgy. They just want to stop you from doing fun things, and they really just want your money. And then in the light, when there was that moment of transition between darkness and light, you somehow heard the message of the gospel, which is simply that God is holy. And, and by His grace, He allowed you to see that you are so materially different than the wonderful, loving, true nature of his character. And so by his grace, he allowed you to see that because you are so different. And it's not like he's really good and he proves it by his actions and you're really bad, but you're also kind of good because you do nice things. It's that you're drawn in the complete opposite direction of him. But he sent his son, Jesus, knowing that that would always be true. Before Christ, there was a way for you to be made right with God through the sacrifice of bulls and goats. But it was imperfect. And it was always supposed to be imperfect so that it would 
give us a path to following after his son, Jesus, who was the fulfillment of that, who was that sacrificial lamb, who when he gave up his own spirit because death had no, no true hold on him, right? Because the penalty of sin is death. So he gave his life up. He gave his spirit up on the cross. And really in that moment, um, went around and did some other stuff, right? Hung out, went and ate some fish with people by the side of the water, walked around for some number of days, still taught scripture, and then said, okay, now I'll go. Then was fully ascended to heaven. When you're able to see the truth of that, and then you turn from trusting yourself and you turn to trusting Christ, you are now in the light. That light was shining before you got there because the light of Christ came into the world and was already living. In fact, it was a beacon that brought you to seeing the truth of God in Christ. It brought you to the gospel, which has been protected, praise God, by the church that Jesus has left behind and preserved in the truth of his word, which you need nothing more than for your salvation. The darkness is passing away in you because you're following now after the light. And when you're in that light and actively in it, you're, we talked about this the, this morning in Sunday school, abiding. You're abiding. You're spending time in Christ. You're reading from the scriptures. You're praying to God. You're in the light. Those, those snares that are there. You look at the fence and you see that curious looking loop. And you thought about running through it, but you said, I see that sneaky little scamp. Now, maybe sometimes you're just drawn towards it, right? And I'm joking about it like it's a, a funny little snare and you're going to get your neck caught in it. But what, what does that look like for you? Maybe that's anger towards the brethren. Maybe there's some occasion for you to feel pridefully towards one another. So-and-so didn't talk to me this morning. John Nicholas was bristly towards me. And now I'm angry with him. And, and so what am I going to do with that anger? Am I going to go to him and talk to him? Am I going to go to her and talk to her? No, I'm going to treat her as though she's that thing. What was she dealing with? What was he dealing with? I don't know. It doesn't matter. I don't care or love that person. I'm just going to treat them as a reflection of the way I think they just treated me. And so the question becomes, Jesus's command was to love one another as he loved us. Did Jesus treat people back the way that he felt he received it? Think back to your toddler days. What was the golden rule? Right? To treat others the way that you want to be treated. And so you never know what someone's dealing with. You never know what's going on in someone's life. I learned that in children's ministry. Kids come in, they're acting insane. Tell you what, I've heard some crazy stories in children's ministry, unfortunately. Right? Some kids that are coming in and they're acting up and you figure out a little more about their situation. There's some crushing stuff that's going on in this world. The darkness is a cold inability to walk in love. Think of Cain, Nabal. One brother killed another. His blood was crying out from the ground. In John 11, 9 and 10, Jesus said, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So 
he, he gives the concept of walking in the light and walking in the dark, but he starts with saying, aren't there 12 hours? Can't you decide when you're going to be mobile? Right? We're not talking about a people with a flashlight. Right? We're talking about people who know they're going out in the absolute pitch darkness. And they understand what Jesus is saying. He's saying, are you making logical decisions about the pattern ways that you live your life that set you up for success? Or are you putting yourself in, absolute, in a position for absolute failure? your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Take drastic action. Be aware of who you are. Be aware of the kinds of things. James talks about the the, the sin doesn't come from without of you, right? It's stuff that you already are drawn towards. We have to be aware of who we are. We're but dust. We're not God. We're not God's holiness. We're so far from God's holiness. It required that his son come live perfectly and then die a bloody, torturous death and that all the cups of the wrath of God against the sins for the elect would be poured out on Christ. That's who we are. Hating the brethren demonstrates that we're not walking in the light. We're in a dark spot. You may be a believer, you may have friction and tension with your brother or your sister, but if you're really following after Christ... You either should see that you have a desire to make amends with that person, or you should discipline yourself to pick one of the 12 hours of light and rectify that situation. You should say, look, I don't, I, I may be a believer and be angry with that person, but it's not good fruit or good evidence. It's not good obedience to my Lord. Now, all of our works are going to be tried. Some are going to be wood, hay, stubble, Okay. So that means if I'm passing through the fire, right? If I'm, if I'm, because I, you know, I like to walk on coals to demonstrate who I am. If I'm walking through a fire with something, I'm not going to carry wood, hay, and stubble and expect it to be there on the other end, right? So if my works are being tried that way, and some of them are wood, hay, and stubble, I don't expect them to survive that test. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to make it. But my desire is that I do the works that were put before me. When I come and I'm found in Christ, I'd like to be able to say, look, I did the things that you enabled me to do. Not that I allowed my pride to get in the way of doing those things. That I couldn't humble myself and tell someone I'm sorry because I'm a bumbling idiot who messes things up all the time. That I was so prideful I couldn't do that. And so we're encouraged then in verse 11 the landing spot of everything that John has set up. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And the way that's written, it describes an endpoint that took time to get to, the darkness blinding your eyes. Um, there's this goofy little thing that the, the army does when you're like in basic training. And there's a whole manual that you have to read constantly. When you're in line for food, you have to have this book out and you're pretending that you're reading it, right? It's all these different things you're supposed to learn. And so there's different things that you have to be able to react to in certain situations. So if you're walking along, like you're still in Vietnam as the Army trains us as though it's, you know, the 50s and 60s, and you trip a, a, a cord, there's different kinds of things that can go off. One of those is called a parachute flare. It's super cool. It goes up in the air and it screams, and then the parachute drops and the flare goes off and it lights up the whole area as it slowly falls to the ground. And so with the parachute flare, you hear it go off. You're supposed to react by taking those few seconds of darkness that are left, 
running towards the, you know, the side of whatever you're on and then getting into a fighting position. I am always an idiot. I destroyed my lip by running towards something that I couldn't see in the darkness and diving towards an embankment and splitting my face open with a charging handle uh, of the weapon when it hit the embankment, shoving my lip and getting it stuck in between my teeth. This is acting in the dark. Acting in the light is purposeful. You make decisions about it. You can get information around about what's around you. That's what following after Christ looks like. It's a decision. You get to see some of the fruits and the gifts that come out of you, but you're making a decision to be a certain way, to understand the world in Christ, to turn from understanding your own decision ways. Really, verse 11 picks up from the second part of verse 9. He who hates his brother is still in the dark. So the best way to interpret and understand Scripture is with more Scripture. So I leave you with two. I want to encourage you this week to, as you read and think about and consider and and work to understand this and try to put that into practice, I want you to be reading Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. These really expand what the Christian life looks like played out in Christ. It gives you encouragement to walk in Christ and be a reflection of his love that's in us. And then finally, 1 Corinthians Chapter 13, verses 1 and 3, reads like this. If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the encouragement that you give us the person of Christ to be our Savior, to be our Lord, to be the captain of our salvation, and to make it perfect. God, and that you then call us to be imitators of him and that you enable him with your spirit in us to understand holiness and truth and goodness and that you give us a church to be encouraged through. God, I pray for us as we look to understand all that you inspired John to write in 1 John and this week in in verses 7 through 11, that you encourage us to walk in the light, to pick one of the 12 hours to do our traveling not to do it in the other 12. God, I pray for us as a church that we follow hard after you and purposefully after you and we be abiders and we be doers. And that's how we show our faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please stand and join with us as we uh, worship through song.